Welcome to the Cancer Care Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Living with Breast Cancer updates from the 45th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS, as part one of Living with Breast Cancer. Uh, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech. We really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of you on the program today. There's over 407 participants on the workshop today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Cape Verde, Colombia, India, Iraq, Ireland, Nigeria, Portugal, South Africa, and United Kingdom. So it's, it's a global call as well. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Virginia Kakamani. Dr. Kakamani is Professor of Medicine, Ruth McLean Bauman Bowers Chair in Breast Cancer Research and Treatment, A.B. Alexander Distinguished Chair in Oncology, Leader Breast Oncology Program, UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Kaklamani is going to present overview of breast cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, new research presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, breast cancer-specific treatment updates, early-stage breast cancer genomics and genetics, other people, older people living with breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kaklamani. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, for the kind introduction, and thank you all for listening in today. So, um, you know, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium has been going on every year for the past 45 years, and this year we had uh, close to 10,000 uh, attendees, mostly in person, but uh, around 30% or so were virtual. Um, and, and it was really a, a very busy symposium as far as research is concerned. Um, but obviously it happens in December, <laughs> which is why it's always a, a hard time to do it, not just because of the time of year, but also because of the season of flu that we have in the past few years. Obviously, we've also had to, to worry about uh, COVID and, and, and whatever variant is more prevalent uh, during that time. So I guess my first topic is pretty uh, timely uh, of how to, how to treat our patients in, in this era of COVID and seasonal flu. Um, so a lot of research has been done in the past uh, couple of years looking at our breast cancer survivors and our cancer survivors in general and whether the vaccines are effective, whether we should be stopping chemotherapy if a patient gets diagnosed with COVID and so forth. And what we, what we found was that the vaccines are effective and they do produce a, um, a good amount of antibodies against COVID. Now, the vaccines may not be effective for certain other treatments that patients receive for different cancers, uh, but for all of the treatments we have available for breast cancer, these vaccines are effective. 
Um, now, uh, we obviously also uh, strongly urge our patients to be vaccinated for the seasonal flu. That's extremely important. And also ask them to be up to date on their COVID uh, vaccinations and all of the, the boosters. Uh, we also have antibodies against COVID that we can infuse, and we typically do that every six months. And the recommendation is that we do that mostly for the patients that are receiving chemotherapy uh, for breast cancer. And so we do that routinely for our patients because in those patients, the, the response to the vaccine may not be as strong as the response for patients that are not on active chemotherapy. So thankfully, we found that uh, on, on several of our clinical trials, we didn't have an increased mortality because of COVID, meaning that more patients didn't die because they had breast cancer and also were diagnosed with COVID, uh, which makes all of us feel a little bit better about this whole situation. Now, moving on to SABCS and what was, what was presented, and I'll talk a little bit about some new research and some new drugs. Um, most of the new drugs that were looked at were for um, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. We have a, a new drug which has a very difficult name and hopefully at some point it'll have an easier name. It's called Capivasertiv. Uh, we call it CAPI for short, C-A-P-I. And this is a drug that was shown to help women with that had uh, breast cancer that had metastasized, so it had spread. And especially if we combine it with an anti-estrogen therapy, which is a pretty routine therapy that we give to those patients. Now, this is a brand new trial, but this is a trial that the FDA is going to be looking at to decide whether to approve CAPI or not. And based on the results of the trial, it probably will approve the drug. Now, we have another drug that uh, the FDA is already looking at and may potentially approve it in the next couple of months. And that one is called Elicestrant. And it is a pill that we take, again, for women that have estrogen-positive metastatic breast cancer. And that pill seems to help improve outcomes compared to the standard hormone therapy that we have and we give to our patients. Um, as I mentioned, the FDA is reviewing this, and so we should have an answer in the next couple of months about whether this drug is going to be approved or not, uh, but things, at least on the clinical trial front, look very promising. And then we move to these other drugs, which are called antibody drug conjugates. And these are drugs that we've had out for breast cancer for a while, but in the past couple of years, we've had an explosion of these drugs. And now we routinely use them for breast cancer, but several new data were presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. One of these drugs is called trastuzumab deruxagan, and it's used for, for cancers that are HER2 positive, but also a new uh, subtype of cancer called HER2 low, which we literally just started thinking about this year. Um, we have another drug called sasituzumab govotecan, and that drug we were using for patients that had triple negative breast cancer. So breast cancer that did not express the estrogen receptor and did not express the HER2. But now research that was presented at San Antonio shows that this drug is also active in estrogen positive breast cancer. Um, and then we have a, a third antibody drug conjugate, which is called DATO-DXD. 
And this one is still in a little preliminary studies, but it's showing very good activity in, in triple negative breast cancer. So uh, stay tuned for these for this medication because I think in the next couple of years, we're gonna be using it routinely for our patients with uh, triple negative breast cancer and potentially ER positive breast cancer as well. So the landscape is changing quite a bit for our metastatic breast cancer treatments and all of these drugs are now being evaluated in the early stage setting so that hopefully we can prevent metastatic disease from occurring. Now, in the early stage breast cancer, we had um, an update of a, a clinical trial that looked at a CDK46 inhibitor called abemacyclib, and these drugs are used routinely uh, in, in women whose cancers have spread. But now we started using those drugs, especially abemacyclib, in early stage breast cancer, and we found that it can help uh, improve outcomes and, and prevent the cancer from spreading. Um, and so the updated results confirm that this is a good drug and we should be using it. And this is a drug that the FDA has approved for this indication. When looking at genomics and genetics, uh, a lot of excitement as far as trying to do tests that can help predict who's going to need chemotherapy, predict who's going to benefit from suppressing the ovaries. Um, and, and, and for genetics, they looked at several gene mutations, so changes in the genes that are inherited from the parents of the children and what the risk of developing a second breast cancer was because that was not really well established previously. And this is important because our patients want to know if they should be removing both breasts if they have these mutations or whether they should not. And so I think this research kind of helped figure out who we should recommend that they have bilateral mastectomy, so removing both breasts, or they should just remove the, the cancer itself without proceeding to remove the breasts. Uh, so I'll finish with that. As I mentioned, it was a pretty crowded year, but that, that was good news for our patients. We had uh, some data for younger patients with uh, uh, outcomes uh, for pregnancy, um, which were very encouraging. Uh, not a lot of updates in our older patients, and this was one of the one of the things that came up that we should be paying attention a little more attention to our older uh, patients that live with breast cancer, and 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 I'm hoping that this is what something we can cover next year. So thank you again for listening, and thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kaklamani. That was really an outstanding presentation. Just wonderful, um, really stellar, um, covered a lot, and set the stage for today's program. So thank you so much. And our next speaker now is Dr. Hallie Moore. And Dr. Moore is Director, Breast Oncology Program, Tossic Cancer Center Institute, Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Moore will be addressing new treatment for metastatic breast cancer. Younger people living with breast cancer can survivorship the positive trial, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort and pain, the role of clinical trials, how research increases treatment options, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Moore. Hi there, thank you, thank you so much um, for inviting me to speak today. I think I'm going to pick up about where Dr. Kaklamani left off. She mentioned um, the 
uh, important trial in younger women with breast cancer, uh, which was the positive trial addressing the safety of pregnancy um, in women with hormone-responsive breast cancer. So, um, and I should mention, I am a co-author on this study. Um, as a little bit of background, women with early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer typically take hormonal treatments for about five to 10 years following their initial treatment in order to reduce the risk of recurrence. So this can present a dilemma for premenopausal women who desire pregnancy following their breast cancer diagnosis. Um, uh, the hormonal treatments that we use are uh, not compatible with pregnancy and should be stopped prior to attempting pregnancy. But we also know that staying on treatment is important in preventing recurrence or spread of the breast cancer. Um, and so there's a, a natural concern that interrupting the treatment could increase the recurrence of breast cancer. And there also may be concerns about the effects of pregnancy itself on a hormone-sensitive cancer. Interestingly, retrospective studies, so studies that look back at what has happened in people who chose uh, to become pregnant following a breast cancer diagnosis, don't suggest any increased risk of cancer when a woman becomes pregnant within the first five years after her breast cancer diagnosis. And actually, um, we see pretty, pretty good outcomes in this group. Um, and that is true both for those with hormone receptor negative breast cancer as well as those with hormone receptor positive breast cancer. But prior to this meeting, we haven't had prospective or forward-looking studies addressing this issue. So in order to better understand uh, any risk of temporarily stopping hormonal treatment, to attempt pregnancy, the study called the positive study enrolled young breast cancer survivor, survivors who desired pregnancy and had completed between 18 and 36 months of adjuvant endocrine therapy. Participants stopped their hormonal treatments for at least three months uh, prior to attempting pregnancy and were followed for pregnancy and breast cancer-related outcomes. The intent was that most participants would resume their hormonal treatments um, within two years or so of, um, of stopping, allowing for that time to wash the medications out, attempt to conceive carrying the pregnancy if conception occurred, and then uh, nursing if possible and desired by the patient. So the primary endpoint of the study was breast cancer-free interval, which is the time from initial enrollment to any event, including a uh, recurrence of breast cancer in the breast or elsewhere in the body or a new invasive cancer on the other side. And in order to provide an estimate of what risk we might have expected for these events, um, uh, among people who didn't interrupt their endocrine therapy, they used another uh, combination of clinical trials, the SOFT and TEXT trials, which studied different endocrine treatment options for premenopausal women. And they matched the participants for similar treatment, similar age, and disease characteristics. 
And what was presented at the San Antonio meeting was that for patients in the positive study, the rate of recurrence of these recurrence events at three years was very similar to the rate observed in the matched participants in the soft and text trial with no hint of a higher risk. So this is very reassuring regarding the safety of this approach. Uh, among the participants, about 74% did successfully become pregnant. Um, and at the time of the analysis, about 64% of the patients involved in the study had had at least one live birth. Uh, so there were a total of 365 babies born to 317 different women, and most of those women did then go on to resume their endocrine treatment um, after completion of their pregnancies, although some did not and were actually trying to attempt a second pregnancy. Um, and then a, a small minority of patients actually chose not to resume their endocrine treatment for reasons um, that are uh, less clear. So hopefully these findings can help us to guide our patients and their providers to, to make the best decisions for them as an individual regarding whether um, it's appropriate to interrupt treatment to attempt pregnancy. And of course, long-term follow-up on the study will be very important. Currently, we have only three years of follow-up, and there is a plan to follow these patients for 10 years. Uh, there are a number of other uh, presentations at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium related to other survivorship and side effect management issues. Many of these results, however, really aren't going to clearly change what we do in practice. And some of the presentations really just kind of highlighted areas of needs in terms of symptoms and side effect management. Uh, for example, a study that included patients receiving taxane-based chemotherapy, so paclitaxel, or which you may know as taxol, or docetaxel, which is taxotere, um, and they looked at the incidence of neuropathy, which could, is numbness, tingling, pain in the extremities that we can see following this type of chemotherapy. And they found that about two-thirds of the patients receiving this class of chemotherapy drugs had what they described as clinically meaningful neuropathy symptoms. And what that, usually that means it's somehow interfering with, with daily function. Um, at, and this occurred, occurred um, in about two-thirds of the patients at some point in um, their treatment. And at a year following treatment, about half the patients still had some of those neuropathy symptoms. So this is really significant because we don't have great treatment options for neuropathy. There are medications like gabapentin and duloxetine that can help with uh, the pain part of the neuropathy, but it does not always help with the numbness, tingling, and functional interference um, that, we can, that can be like a big challenge uh, with this symptom. At our institution, we actually encourage our patients to use cooling mitts or socks or both um, during their taxane treatment because this does appear to help prevent the neuropathy from developing. Another interesting presentation at the meeting looked at uh, yoga as a complementary therapy and found that it helped with patient-reported treatment side effects, including pain, fatigue, 
arm symptoms, as well as physical and emotional function. Uh, the study was actually also designed to look at the impact on breast cancer recurrence and survival. Um, the, it didn't really show a clear difference with the yoga um, at about seven years of follow-up, but there was a hint that there may have been fewer cancer recurrences and slightly better survival in the group that was assigned to the yoga intervention. Uh, but certainly the main uh, benefit of the yoga that they confirmed in the study was the symptom improvement. So a relatively easy option that um, would, is perhaps worth discussing with our patients. Uh, Dr. Kaklamani helped me out with uh, providing you with some of the updates in metastatic um, breast cancer treatment. She mentioned some of the new drugs um, uh, that are um, either approved or may be approved in the near future. So what I think, rather than uh, reiterating what she said, I think I can expand a little bit more on um, a study for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer that I found particularly interesting. And this was called the Right Choice Trial. And it was designed uh, to compare endocrine treatment plus the, a medication called ribociclib, which is a, of a class called a CDK4-6 inhibitor, so one of these uh, more targeted types of treatments that we can combine with the hormonal treatments. Um, so compared that combination to chemotherapy as initial treatment for premenopausal women with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer that was judged to be behaving aggressively. So most of the time, hormone receptor positive breast cancer is treated initially with endocrine-based treatments, uh, which tend to have fewer side effects than uh, chemotherapy treatments. Although Sometimes combination chemotherapy is recommended when an individual is highly symptomatic or appears to have rapidly progressive disease because the thought is that perhaps combination chemotherapy may provide faster control of the disease than hormonally-based treatments. Uh, what the Right Choice study showed, however, is that compared with combination chemotherapy, the time to control of the cancer was actually just as good with the endocrine-based therapy plus the ribociclib. And in addition, the hormonal treatment plus ribociclib was actually better in terms of controlling the cancer, the response rate, um, and the time before the treatment stopped working. So, um, so this was, I think, very important um, in suggesting that most patients, even those with aggressive behaving disease, if they have hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, probably the best choice is going to be to start with the endocrine therapy plus a CDK4-6 inhibitor rather than chemotherapy. And this, um, that choice was also associated with fewer side effects. So. Um, those were um, some of uh, what I found to be the most interesting uh, studies that were presented. Um, the, uh, and I think seeing all of these new findings, um, showing uh, that there's ways that we can do better than we have done in the past, just is a reminder of the importance of 
clinical trials in advancing our care for uh, individuals with breast cancer and other cancers. So I, I think one important reason to consider clinical, participating in a clinical trial is to help future generations of patients by learning as much as we can about risks and benefits of potential new treatments. Uh, in addition, we do find that patients who participate in clinical trials actually tend overall to have better outcomes than those who do not. Um, and those with metastatic breast cancer often receive multiple different treatments over the years. And uh, by, it, by uh, participating in a clinical trial, you may have early access to a new drug or, um, or something that may not have been available um, if you did not participate in a clinical trial. Uh, so while clinical trials don't offer a guarantee, occasionally people do have extraordinary responses to some of these newer agents. And so it, I think it does uh, provide an opportunity and, and certainly if the desired response is not seen or if side effects are not acceptable, the standard treatments are generally still an option after study participation. So there's not a whole lot to be lost for most patients uh, by participating in a clinical trial. In terms of what you might want to ask your healthcare team, I would encourage you to inquire about whether there are clinical trial options that are appropriate for you. I would make sure that you ask about expected side effects of any treatment, whether it's on or off study, um, and um, also discuss options for managing symptoms should they occur. In addition, it's important to share your specific goals, values, and concerns with your provider as this may shape management of side effects. For instance, if you're a pianist, it may be, uh, you know, particularly important to you to not develop severe neuropathy, and knowing that may help your oncologist guide you um, better in weighing the risks and benefits of different treatment options or trying to decide when to modify the dose, et cetera. So I think a um, two-way communication uh, between you and your provider is always going to be uh, most helpful uh, for all involved. And I think I will wrap it up there. I think I'm about at my time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was outstanding and and really just a stellar presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Lawrence Chatelian. And Ms. Lawrence Chatelian is an oncology social worker. She's director of advocacy at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services for people living with breast cancer. And she'll be providing you with uh, how to access services at Cancer Care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here today. I'll start by sharing a little bit about Cancer Care, as Dr. Mesner mentioned. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, virtual community programs, publications, and limited financial assistance. To become connected to any of Cancer Care services, those interested can call Cancer Care's National Hopeline to speak to one of our oncology social workers. 
There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services that have been mentioned so far today, including making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options, and communicating with one's medical team. These are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. By calling Cancer Care's Hopeline, one of our social workers can help navigate ways to seek support services. Individuals diagnosed with breast cancer may also choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis, treatment, even post-treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. At this time, Cancer Care offers national breast cancer support groups online. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website to join an online support group. On Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, there's also a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer. This includes publications about speaking to your medical team, and coping with one's breast cancer diagnosis, as well as stories of help and hope, Cancer Care's podcast, Cancer Out Loud, and breast cancer resources. Upcoming and recorded Connect Education workshops, like this workshop today, can be found at cancercare.org connect, including several workshops specific to breast cancer. People diagnosed with breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continuing stress. When diagnosed and throughout treatment, it may be helpful to discuss any financial concern with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. Please note that if you are encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to offer some assistance. Cancer Care's resource navigation services are offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term strength-based approach to resource navigation where the social worker will work with or resource navigator will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones. We're here to offer support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It's been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak. 
I'll now go ahead and turn our program back to Dr. Meisner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chetelian. That was an outstanding presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I do want everyone to start to prepare for the questions. And now um, we have time for your questions for our speakers. And so I'm going to um, ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question um, for Dr. Moore. Can a pathologist determine if a biopsy for metastatic breast cancer is ductal or lobular? Since lobular does not respond well to chemo, it seems that information could, be, could influence treatment. Could you comment on this question, uh, Dr. Moore? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, the, the best way to distinguish lobular from ductal histology is on the primary uh, breast specimen. There can be features of uh, metastatic biopsies that might indicate one or the other, um, but it, that's they can't always make that distinction. It's also important to remember that that distinction on the biopsy, that, that although in general lobular cancers tend to respond better to hormonal-based treatments than chemotherapy, that doesn't mean that they can't respond to chemotherapy. They just tend to be more hormone-sensitive than uh, invasive ductal carcinomas. But we don't typically use that distinction to make our determination of best first treatment in metastatic disease. It is going to be more helpful to use the results of the hormone receptor studies, the grade of the cancer, the HER2 results, and the prior history, prior treatments received to make determinations about best next treatment in the setting of metastatic disease. Excellent. Thank you so much. And another question for you, um, uh, Dr. Moore. Um, ever since my daughter has had the COVID vaccine, she has had enlarged lymph nodes on that side that the doctor thinks might be related to the vaccine. Do you have any information about that? She keeps getting called back for follow-up mammograms. So there are many reasons that people can have enlarged lymph nodes that aren't necessarily cancer-related. We do see um, lymph node enlargement commonly following the COVID vaccines, and typically those lymph nodes are going to be on the same side um, as the arm where the uh, vaccine was given and can be in the underarm area or in the neck area. Most of the time, those lymph nodes will resolve within a few weeks, uh, from the vaccination, so more persistent lymph nodes um, are may be related to something else. Um, although I, you know, I, I it's possible that um, one could have a persistently large lymph nodes after a COVID vaccine. Excellent, thank you. So we would advise our participant to have her daughter and perhaps she attempt and, and talk to her their physician about this in more detail. Very helpful, though. Thank you. And another question um, for Dr. Moore. Um, are there news about new and useful biomarkers in breast cancer? 
I'm sorry. The question was, was is there, there um, is there any new is there any news about about new and useful biomarkers in breast cancer. Yeah, so so there's a lot of news um, that maybe what we thought were good biomarkers aren't as helpful as um, as what we might have considered. Um, for instance, um, Dr. Kalamani talked about um, uh, that medication. Uh, Trudelvi or sasetuzumab govitekin that has been approved for triple negative breast cancer and now has shown to be useful also in ER positive metastatic breast cancer. And um, it is one of these antibody drug conjugates that targets um, something called topoisomerase 2. And when they looked at whether response correlated with having the target, they actually did not find a correlation. Similarly, we are seeing that HER2 targeting, some of the newer HER2 targeting medications are actually useful in those without um, overexpression of HER2. And, um, and even things that we've used to target immunotherapy, like um, something called a biomarker called PDL1, also does not always predict very well for the best responders. So I think the uh, what we've seen lately is that we have a lot more to learn about how to best predict uh, response to various treatments. So so uh, our I think our, our most helpful biomarker in all of breast cancer has been the estrogen receptor in terms of predicting response to a type of treatment. And uh, while we're still working on identifying better uh, predictors of response for various other targeted type treatments, we still have a long ways to go. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and lots of questions here. What, these are wonderful questions. Um, um, another question has to do with um, any updates for treating vaginal dryness. Even after being off Arimidex for six months, the dryness is still, still severe. Yeah, so there were not any updates at this meeting. What we usually start with the typical, you know, non-hormonal treatments, things like uh, Replens, which is a vaginal moisturizer. We recommend lubricants for intercourse. There are some other options that um, are being looked at. So there, um, there's this uh, treatment called Mona Lisa Touch, which is a laser therapy that has a little bit of data supporting its use for this problem. Um, there are um, suppositories of, of a hormone called DHEA that appears to be safe in women with a breast history of breast cancer. And then um, for those that really aren't responding to um, other treatments, sometimes we do offer vaginal estrogens. Um, the Safest forms seem to be the the more long-lasting forms, like the S-string, which is um, a device that sits up in the vagina and stays for 90 days and has very low level um, uh, of absorption of the estrogen, but has effective local therapy. Um, and there was a recent publication that looked at the risk of vaginal estrogens in women on hormonal treatment for breast cancer. And for women on tamoxifen, 
there did not appear to be an increase in recurrence risk with the use of the vaginal estrogens. For women on aromatase inhibitors, there did appear to be a suggestion of an increased risk of recurrence of the cancer. However, um, the survival was not impacted um, by the use of these. So um, this is something that really needs to be individualized and, and discussed with the doctor. And um, any, any new results um, or treatments for BRCA along with triple negative? Uh, so again, um, in terms of updates at at the meeting, uh, nothing that is coming to mind. Of course, the the new class of medications that we've been using more of um, are these PARP inhibitors, and these are oral therapies that um, take advantage of the um, changes in DNA repair that occur in individuals who have uh, BRCA mutations. So these are drugs that have been um, uh, used in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer that's BRCA-associated and have shown to have results that are as good as standard chemotherapy and with less side effects. In addition, um, the drug Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, has been approved for use in early-stage breast cancer that is BRCA-associated and at high risk for recurrence. So this has kind of expanded the patients for whom we recommend uh, genetic testing. So there are a number of different indications for genetic testing based on family history, personal history, and the risk, the likelihood that the cancer is uh, genetic related, but now we're also uh, considering genetic testing for individuals because they may be in a category where they would benefit from a different treatment if we were to identify one of these mutations. Thank you. And another question from Ms. Jalian about our support groups in cancer care. Sure. I can share a little bit about our support groups. So um, on our website, you can, you'll be able to see a list of our services, and that does include a tab for support groups. Um, we have two different types of support groups. So we have our online support groups, which I was describing, and there's a long list of patient support groups, caregiver support groups. Um, and you can click on each one of these, see a little description, and then register. Um, you can begin the registration process there. Uh, separately, we also have our live or virtual support groups, and those are local to New York and New Jersey. Um, if you're looking for a support group local to you, um, I would definitely recommend calling our Hope Line and one of our social workers can help direct you or help provide some resources for supports nearby as well. And another question, actually, for uh, Dr. Moore. Um, what are the major differences in treatment and concerns between an otherwise healthy and younger person and an otherwise healthy older person? Um, so there are so there are differences 
with so some differences that relate to menopausal status, so especially in estrogen sensitive cancer, um, uh, having premenopausal hormone levels may um, change our treatment recommendations, and there may be different uh, issues for the patients to consider, like with young patients. Um, more concerned about fertility issues, uh, a higher likelihood of a genetic form of the breast cancer. So there are a few differences um, that respect that with respect to being young and premenopausal. And then there are also, as we get older, there may be differences in terms of ability to tolerate drugs. There's a higher incidence of other medical issues. And there is a little bit different balance of, of risks and benefits of treatment um, as we're getting, um, as we have fewer anticipated um, years ahead of us. So if you're 80 and you have breast cancer and it's a small cancer that's unlikely to uh, cause you know, a, a bad outcome over the next decade, it may be of less interest to do aggressive treatments than if you're 40 and have the same cancer. So, so you know, every treatment must be individualized. But um, for older patients, the the decisions can be complex because you really need to understand realistically what their risk is from their other health concerns, what their tolerance is going to be of various cancer treatments. Um, as well as want to, wanting to optimize our outcomes from the breast cancer. Another question, actually, for you, Dr. Moore. Um, it seems that my oncology practice said I could use cooling myths if I wanted, wanted to, but no data to support use or not use. Yeah, so um, yeah, there, are, there have been some studies looking at them, and um, they, they aren't large studies, but they, um, they do suggest the benefit. It's hard to quantify. Neuropathy is a very difficult symptom to study, but there have been um, some small studies suggesting that they're beneficial. And then um, question again for Dr. Moore. Um, it would be better to test more women so they can help avoid cancer in the first place, especially those of us with hidden mutations through our fathers, comment, not a question. Do you want to comment on <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, so, right. So I, it's really important um, that people inquire about family histories and, uh, you know, try to, uh, and for those that are found to have um, uh, mutations, increasing cancer risk, it's really important to share that information with family members so that they can be tested as appropriate and, and try to get, um, it, you know, a, a appropriate plans for either close surveillance or um, risk reduction for uh, whatever cancers they uh, may be at risk for. Excellent. Thank you. Um... And another question for you. Um, I keep having hot flashes at night that are making me lose sleep. Is there anything I can do to relieve them? So there are a number of uh, interventions that have suggested benefit for hot flashes. Uh, interestingly, placebo has about a 25% benefit for hot flashes. 
And there was even one study that suggested that um, even knowing that they took placebo, um, some people benefited, which is a study I have trouble understanding. Um, some of the simple interventions that we recommend, there, there's some data to support vitamin E and magnesium for hot flashes. These help a few uh, people. There are medications that can be beneficial. Um, some of the best studied are uh, some of the antidepressant drugs like venlafaxine. And um, gabapentin has also been shown to reduce the risk as well as um, oxybutynin. And uh, the, uh, uh, there are some data supporting acupuncture for reduction in hot flashes. And then sometimes they will just get better on their own with time, although that's not the case for everyone. It's really, um, these are really, I, mean, I have to say these are, we've done this program a number of times, we've, the number of questions are really quite excellent. Um, well, here's a question um, about this related to COVID. Um, if I am not receiving chemotherapy, do I need to get the six-month infusion for COVID vaccine? So the antibody infusions that Dr. Kaklamani um, discussed um, are something that we actually no longer are giving at our institution because they don't appear to be particularly effective against the current strains of the virus. So, so and, and even when we were doing this, this wasn't something we were routinely providing to our breast cancer patients. Um, most of the people for whom we were recommending it were those who were, had, who were on very immunosuppressive treatments, such as um, uh, like patients with hematologic malignancies. So, you know, I think there's some variation in practice about where, depending on where you are, and there also may be individual factors that might put people at, at greater risk than others. But an otherwise healthy person who has breast cancer but is on, um, not on chemotherapy um, and not on, you know, a targeted therapy that could affect the immune system um, probably doesn't need any uh, special considerations above and beyond the general population. Excellent. Thank you. And I just want to let everybody know that we do have two more um, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium workshops. One is on December 20th on uh, from San Antonio on triple negative breast cancer. And the other one is January 18th on ERPR HER2 positive um, breast cancer. So we do have, although we, we addressed a lot of topics today, and you've had wonderful questions. Nevertheless, um, there's more to come, and you'll be all receiving information about that if you haven't already signed up for them. And then also, um, I'm going to ask our speakers both uh, Dr. Moore and Ms. Chattel, and to just provide a takeaway of what you'd like people to take away from today's program. So, Dr. Moore, do you want to start? So, I guess the big takeaway is that our breast cancer research is extremely important. We're never going to uh, continue to make improvements without uh, support for clinical trials and participation in clinical trials. Excellent. Uh, thank you. It's so important. Um, and, Ms. Chattel, Sure, absolutely. I, I would say um, 
you know, similar to that and, um, you know, of course, you know, promoting research and, um, you know, the resources available to people impacted um, by breast cancer. Also do want to mention that there are many um, support services and ways to connect with others. Um, and I would definitely, you know, tap into some of those professionals and, um, you know, it's important to, to advocate and, and communicate with your medical team as well. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank our participants for asking such terrific questions. Um, and I do want to comment because we have many more questions in queue that we're able to take than we're able to take. So for those of you who asked a question or have a question yet to ask or are thinking of a future question, please take what you learned today and go back to your healthcare team, even if you asked a question today. Um, and please ask it of your healthcare team because remember, they know you the best. They have your medical records in front of them. And so, um, and also you have learned something today. So you'll be taking that information back to your treating healthcare team and keep asking your questions until you get the answers that you need. That's really important. Communication is the key here. Also, we don't want any one of you to leave today's program feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of the community of support. And um, Ms. Chatelian has done a wonderful job explaining all the services that Cancer offers for free. So do take advantage of those services. Also, your institution may also offer a host of help as well, both in terms of, um, you know, the, your oncologist, um, also the uh, oncology nurses, um, financial navigators, patient navigators, oncology social workers. So they may have lots of resources you don't really know about until you ask about them. So never hesitate to ask as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I look forward to you being on the next program on December 20th and then on the January program as well. You all take care and have a fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.